Hi, y'all. We are back for another podcast episode, and I'm excited to dive into this topic today about, and I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but to have Catherine Latang here today to be able to share her experience, I think it's going to be such an incredible conversation we are about to have. But what we're going to talk about today is as you're going through your the journey with your autistic child or your autistic children, that, that piece of starting to discover who you are. And before I hit record today, Catherine said something oh, that I absolutely just love. So I want to repeat it is she said the last year for her was about finding her voice and recognizing her own autism and being autistic and what that means and how that impacts her family. But then this year is all about using her voice. So I'm so excited to be able to welcome her to the podcast today so she can share her family's journey, her own journey of what it was like growing up and then being identified, then identifying as autistic and getting that diagnosis and what that process was like. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. That was such a cool intro. And yeah, as you were saying that, I was like, how perfect that this is like January because right. I get to now start this year of using my voice here on your podcast. So it's amazing. Yeah. Leaping into action of what these goals are and yeah, just jumping in. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I gave you a little bit of an intro, but introduce us to you, your family and how a brief intro, we'll talk more, but how you got to where you are today of being on this podcast and using your voice. Okay, perfect. So yeah, my name is Catherine. If you don't know me, I go by the neurodiversity mom on Instagram and I'm a mom to two autistic children. I call my oldest C, he is five. My youngest, I call W and she is four, just turned four. And they were both diagnosed at around two years old and they are very different. They have very different profiles. C is PDA autistic and W is very much unmasked and lives every day as a wild sensory seeker. And I love everything about it. I personally am autistic. I was diagnosed within the last year and yeah, it's been really a wild journey. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so grateful. That's actually how we met as well. I don't remember how, but I remember coming across your account and I was like, this is awesome. And I love what you share. And 
I, I yeah. think one thing actually that comes to mind for me is you do share so much and you're also willing at the same point to share the hard points. So you guys just got back from this really long trip and talking about the travel back and how that was difficult too. Like it's not only about empowering parents, either themselves or with their autistic children, but also sharing some of the behind the scenes. What has that been like for you? Yeah. So I think that's the hard part for me is I'm a very positive person in my nature. And I always want to express things in a positive way, but I also want to be real. And I, but at the same time, also respect my kids' right to privacy and think about what I share and what they would be okay with and how much I share. So it's really like this weird formula that I'm always trying to work work of trying to respect everyone, but also be very real and positive and show that autism has so many amazing parts and it's been so positive for our family, but also recognizing that it is a disability and there are hard, a lot of hard things and our world is just at the moment not well equipped to support us in a lot of ways. So just being able to be real about all of that is super important, but can be hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your account is one of those accounts. And I'm so grateful to found, have found other accounts like this too, that give a voice to truly what it can look like. And I think there are a lot of accounts also out there that are just talking about all the negatives. And I think you share this beautiful, comprehensive journey of Yes, there are hard things and that's the nature of it being a disability. And like you said, it's changed your life in such a positive direction that I think that message getting out there is how we begin to see more of the shift and the change that we're all hoping for. Yeah. And you know what, as you're saying that, I'm like, I know how we first interacted. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was over an account that was similar because it was when you stitched that um, video that was a mom talking about um, how she feels bad for siblings. And you were just sharing about how, but just think about the autistic child. They never really get that experience of being in inclusive spaces and being truly accepted as themselves and how hard their lives are. Whereas like the typical sibling still gets to go to school and have a normal experience and all of that. And you shared about your brother. And yeah, that is when I watched that, I was like, yes, she gets it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I ended, oh, I was so fired up about that. I ended up recording a episode too, of just like me deep diving that even more because it was so hard to get all my feelings in such a short, like real, if that makes sense, because I think that's the thing is, yeah, the, so what we're talking about is the real literally was talking about like how unfair that was the word unfair it is to siblings of autistic children. And I just thought it placed such a negative emphasis on the family dynamic. And while there are things I talk about this, there are things that are unfair, but there are also things that are unfair to the autistic children too. The goal isn't about making it fair, but also there, there are positives. There are good things. I would never be in this space and be who I am today without an autistic sibling. And there's so many different layers to this. Yeah. I got real fired up and did a whole deep dive on a podcast episode about that. (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah. And that's the thing. And it's not saying like accounts like that or voices like that are wrong. Like we all go through 
different, like Erin Spinson's talks, how she just shared like that journey, right. That we all go through. Um, and it's, we are somewhere on this journey of um, maybe being neuroaffirming, hopefully ending up as neuroaffirming parents. But there's a lot of people that are still stuck in those earlier stages of diagnosis, grief, and th the fact that there's spaces that maybe give voice to that is is maybe good. But I think it's also very important that there's voices that are moving us along and being like, yes, it's hard, but hey, look at all the beauty that can also be there. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I just love voices like yours that can help parents to are leading the way to show parents that they can get there and it is okay. And actually what I'll do, I'll double check with Erin, but as long as she's good with it, I'll link this resource in the show notes. So you guys can see the path we're talking about. And some of the parents do get stuck in those earlier spaces. And I think some of that is because the education isn't out there, right? I know as a clinician diagnosing autism and I hear from a lot of parents, it's like, they're just thrown these resources. And a lot of, many of those resources aren't affirming in themselves. And that's all that they hear about autism. But I think this is the really cool thing. And the thing that I love about social media so much is you get to learn from, I say this all the time, directly from autistic voices. I think it's one way to be able to access that without a lot of gatekeeping that exists in our world and in our systems, but I think also learning from parents as well, like yourself. So yeah, thank you for being a voice. I know it's not always easy either. Yeah. yeah and that's the thing, like sharing the hard stuff, that is not easy for me. And, and I get this icky voice in my head sometimes when I'm like, okay, I feel like I need to share this, but if I share this, does it look like I'm doing it for like attention? Does it look like, is it yucky? I don't know if I want to share this. And then I'm like, okay, but the thing is, what if people are always looking at my account and being like, oh, she's got it all figured out. Her kids are just perfect. Like she's, and I don't want to spread that toxic positivity either. So it's yeah, just striking that balance is important. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important. One of the things that I've seen, and I feel like at least since I followed your account, you've always done this where you are referring to your children as the initials and that's what you do. And then we don't see your kids on your account really. And I, I think yet at the same time, we learned so, so much. And I feel like I know your family in some way, <laughs> but then it's also protecting your kids that, like you said, they don't have, they're not making the choice to be public. And I think there's been a really cool shift that's starting to happen in that regard too with social media. But it's interesting. I'm starting to see it more with the autism parenting accounts in particular that we're starting to see more people pull back their kids' presence on their social media yeah. And it's such a hard balance because it's, I want people to know my kids. Like my kids are obviously, I think the sun shines out of their behinds and I want, <laughs> I want everyone to know them, but, and so it's nice that I, that you feel that way. Cause that's the thing I, I do want people to know them, but in a way that is protected. And so no one's walking up to them. Like I've had people, someone already come up to me in a store, which was so awesome. Like being like, Oh, you're the neurodiversity mom. And I'm like, yes, oh my God, that's so cool. But I made that choice to, to be public like that. And I, I don't know if I'd want someone going up to my kid and being like, oh, you're C, but say his full name and know everything about him. And he's, I don't know you. So yeah. So I think that's been a lot of it. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit, rewind a little bit of 
the kids, the kids got diagnosed first, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Talk us through that journey and a little bit of that timeline. Okay. So yeah, it's quite funny because, so I have a postgraduate degree in education. I have worked with autistic children before having kids. And then (laughs) when I had my son see, he was a very typically developing baby. In fact, like he met all his milestones super early. He waved early, clapped early. He did everything kids do. And then, and then it was around his first birthday. We noticed like a slight speech regression. He had a bunch of words and we just noticed he stopped saying a couple and then his kind of his, he also had started walking and then stopped walking. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. But at the same time, he was still very like social and bubbly. So we just didn't worry too much about it. Um, And then as time went on, he didn't really develop at all between 12 months to 18 months. And then from 18 months on, he started developing again. And we started having, he started walking, he was talking, like everything was back on track. Um, But we started noticing these big emotions, like just these huge upsets and just assumed like toddler tantrums. But he was always very specific and very routine oriented, like around sleep, like he needed to be in his crib to sleep at a specific time. We couldn't go spend the night at like a hotel or at my sister's house or anything like that. Or he would be up till four in the morning. Like he just, he was very like very routine based. And we started noticing just before two, he was all of a sudden, like he knew the whole alphabet. He could recognize every letter, every number. We're like, oh, we have a prodigy. Like he's just, he's so smart and wonderful, which he is. And yeah, so we didn't pay too much attention to it, but then um, around to these like explosive emotions just started to start to control our lives, whether it was putting snow pants on, like things like that. It was just like huge emotions. And I took him to an OT and this was actually around the time that COVID was hitting. So we saw an OT just before COVID and she was like, oh, and he, oh, he got referred to a speech therapist and the speech therapist, the literally said no issues with social skills, no issues with speech, like everything seems all fine. So then COVID happened and we got referred to someone called a behavior consultant. And she was actually the one, it was all over the phone, but she was actually the one that asked very questions around his behavior and his need for routine and sensory stuff and all of that. And she was like, I think he needs to go for an autism assessment. And I remember my exact words were, no, like, it's something, but it's not autism. Because <laughs> I was like, I know autism. But I think sometimes when we come from professionals in this space, we end up thinking like, we've seen it all. So we'll see it in our kids. And I think that kind of screws us over because obviously we should know that if you've met one autistic child, you met one autistic child. But when you see your kid, your child is so multifaceted, you see every aspect of them. And that kind of cancels out the areas where they're maybe struggling a little bit. Anyway, so long story short, he got a diagnosis uh, after we took him to a pediatrician and the pediatrician's words were actually like, I'm going to give him a diagnosis, but I'm not hundred percent sure, but I would rather he had a diagnosis and you got access to services and we can reassess at a later stage. What age was that? Uh, Around two and a half. Okay. Yeah. So the listeners know Catherine is in Canada. So it's a little bit different of a system than if you're US based. Was this your regular pediatrician that diagnosed him or like a developmental behavioral? No. 
Yeah. So our regular pediatrician referred him to a developmental pediatrician who had a two-year wait list. So then I decided to take matters into my own hands and found another diagnosing pediatrician who had a shorter wait list. I think it was around two months. And um, we got, it's in Canada, it's public healthcare. So you're just at the mercy of wait times and the public healthcare system. But yeah, I managed to get him referred to another pediatrician who isn't a developmental pediatrician, but he, his special interest is autism. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, So it all worked out and the diagnosis was absolutely correct. So it, yeah, even though many professionals and others have doubted it along the way, he is absolutely autistic. (laughs) And I think just to point out for parents listening, this is really common when the PDA profile is part of the autistic presentation where, cause I hear this a lot, like hitting developmental milestones that there weren't these early worries, a lot mm-hmm. of like providers not being sure, or literally I could take your words and place it on like cases I work with where the speech language pathologist mm-hmm. being like, oh no, they're fine. There's nothing to worry about. And that's not a a diss at speech language pathology. I think people that don't understand the PDA profile, that often is accompanied by high masking autism. And so it, it doesn't have this quote unquote classic presentation, which also, you know, to your To what you said as well, I think probably when you were working in the system with autistic children, we weren't as savvy at identifying some of these high masking children as well. So in some ways too, you probably had a biased sample of what you thought autism looked like. Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. And in some ways he did have classic traits, like in the sense of he lined up cars from one side of the room to the other. But if I asked him what the cars were doing, they were in a traffic jam. So it was like, okay, it's functional. It was, yeah, it was like, I had a lot of questions and I didn't quite understand, but yeah. So after his diagnosis, we were told he needs intensive ABA therapy in order to function and get over these big emotional outbursts. And that it's just what you do. Your child gets diagnosed with autism. They go into ABA. Yep. I was like, okay, that's what we're doing. And what we noticed was his outbursts got worse. They got infinitely worse. They were, he was having meltdowns everywhere we go. I remember we went to the chiropractor once and he was losing his mind. So upset. This poor child was so dysregulated and just a disaster. I didn't know what to do. I remember looking at the chiropractor and going, I don't know what to do. And the chiropractor looking at me and being like, I don't know what to do either. And I'm like, I need an adult. And like, where's the parent? Cause I was like, I don't know what to do. And it was from then that I started to look into more. It was actually our, we found a more neuroaffirming OT who opened up the world for me on like neuroaffirming parenting and that not all autistic children need OT, need ABA. Strongly recommend OT, but anyway, so um, I I started looking into this and I just was like, no, this is not working. ABA isn't working. I think he was in it for two months and we pulled him out and yeah, the rest is history. We've done very, we've done play project with him. We've done certs, which was all great, but honestly, the best thing for him has just been to let him develop as he does. And he does everything in his own time. That's what we've really found. Yeah. And I think, again, just to link it in, it makes sense why he was having bigger emotions, A, because of this demand. And that is what 
ABA is. It's a lot of demands. It's a lot of compliance-based supports. And so it makes sense that his nervous system was just getting completely overwhelmed. I actually have a question for you from your perspective and what you've learned. I actually haven't done any episodes yet on PDA, although I have a mini series planned that will be coming out. And I don't know the exact timing of around this episode when it will come out, but how do you describe the PDA profile? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Okay. So to me, the PDA profile is very complicated because these children appear very typical. And honestly, you sometimes look like a parent that has like Munchausen's because it's literally a lot of it comes out at home. And it's really these children that can appear very typical. They mask very heavily, but just demands. They basically, I look at it like they have a cup where, which allows for demands and the capacity of this cup is always fluctuating and changing depending on their sensory input, their mood. So many different things can impact their demand capacity cup. And basically every demand goes into this cup until they're demanded out and it just boils over and they're done. And this can look different. It can be um, meltdowns. It can eventually be burnout. A lot of PDA autistic children um, end up with burnout, which is a huge fear of mine. And it's often related to school. The school system is often really in stark contrast to suiting a PDA child because school is just inherently so full of demands. And because these children are high masking, it's just a recipe for disaster because they seem like they're doing okay. They're taking in all these demands and then they come home and the restraint collapse, if you want to call it, that is beyond restraint collapse. It is, it can be absolutely explosive. Getting the answer for them is really to live this uh, lifestyle that really reduces demands and to have a parent that is very aware of their regulation in any moment in time and getting professionals or the people closest to them to all see that too is a huge part of the struggle really because PDA is not a diagnosis in Canada. It's not a diagnosis in the U S so when you go to a professional being like, I think my child is PDA autistic. It's, I I don't know what you're talking about a lot of the time and you're not, you can often like not really be taken seriously. So I think parents of, of PDA autistic children really are, are in a hard place because they just feel like no one is listening and no one like takes them seriously or no one sees their child struggles. I think it's a very, it can be a very lonely place. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally own if someone had come to me, say a couple years ago, I would have been like, yeah, I don't even know what this is. I remember actually 
first learning about PDA and I was like, oh, that's something over in the UK. And now it's, that's probably my number one referral source or referral like inquiry is about PDA. And it's, yeah, I think it's opened up my eyes as a clinician about my practice and what that, what that's in all of that. And thinking about my brother, I don't think that he had the PDA profile. And so that also wasn't something from that sibling experience that I grew up with either. So exactly. My daughter, absolutely. I don't believe is PDA. And so with her, I then also didn't really see her diagnosis either because I was then used to our son's PDA profile. So it's very interesting how, yeah, this, this kind of exists and the spectrum that is autism. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Do you feel, I'm curious, do you feel like you changed your parenting approach? Understanding, I guess in both ways, like understanding your children are autistic, but in particular with that PDA lens and understanding that as well expectations around the milestone where your child is meant to get themselves dressed. It's like my child's absolutely capable, but um, his nervous system isn't a lot of the time. I just dress him. And I'm, there was always this insistence from like the ABA kind of advice that like your child must dress himself and here's your visual schedule. But for a PDA child, that is just in that is a a schedule is, can be so demand heavy because it's just, this is what you must do. Then you must do this. Then you must do this. And that just really challenges the, the child's autonomy because they feel like they're out of control and what they need is to feel like they're in control. I, I often will just leave his clothes out or I get him dressed on those harder days. I really just do what I can to really keep his nervous system regulated. And I think it's just that phrase of kids they will do well if they can. And that's it. Like no child, I think most children do strive to do things themselves and to do things well. And to every child wants to do well. If your child is saying like having an absolute meltdown about getting dressed, it's maybe they just can't right now and that's okay. Let's just help them. The day will come. And many of those days have come for me. I think that's a testament that like living this like kind of low demand lifestyle absolutely does work. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny, you talk about a cup, I, I call it a jug because I, yeah. I analogy a lot, but I think what's important to also understand is that we all have this cup or this jug inside of us. And if you are not autistic or you are not PDA, you just ha- might have a larger capacity, but Trust me, I believe I'm neurotypical. I don't know. It will be interesting to see that unfolding journey as I continue to learn, but at this space and time, but I lose it sometimes, right? Because my system gets overwhelmed and overloaded too. And we all have this as humans. And I love just sometimes thinking of, okay, maybe that jug isn't as big for an individual that's PDA autistic and, and, or it fills at a much more rapid rate is another way to think of it. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then your son's diagnosed and then talk a little bit about your daughter's journey. Yes. So then W came along. She was already, so she was a baby when C was diagnosed. W, she was also, her development was like fairly typical. I just remember we had a, a consultant who was working with us, like an early intervention 
a consultant through the region who was working with our son on certs, basically said, oh, how's W doing? This was when she was around one. How's W doing? Is she meeting all her milestones? And I was like, yeah, I think so. The only thing is that she's not clapping. That was like the only thing at around one. And then as time went on, we realized she had a speech delay. By two, we saw like an SLP and they basically said, yeah, she had a pretty major speech delay, but she also had glasses. She had really poor vision. So we were just like trying to figure everything out. We were in like that haze of like, just trying to survive. Plus also me being undiagnosed autistic. Like I found parenting two toddlers, just an insane sensory overload. And yeah, I was definitely in barely survival mode at that stage. Anyways, COVID is still going on too. Yeah. Yes. And it's COVID and yeah. (laughs) I I just can't imagine all of this on top of COVID. Like, because that was when C was diagnosed, I was like, are there even pediatricians that's going to see us? He had his assessment virtual because that was it. So that even made even more questions because I was like, what was done virtually? Like, how much can we trust this? With W, when the speech was really the only sign, she was very easygoing, very bubbly, very social. So she really only had a speech delay. That was like the only noticeable thing at two. And then around just like literally within two months after that, we started getting questions from her daycare about, has W had her hearing checked? Because she doesn't seem to respond very often if she's doing something. And I was like, yeah, we noticed that too. Yeah, she seems pretty hyper fixated on things. And she was also just a major sensory seeker. She was just like, had no fear. She was jumping off the couch. She was just like wild jumping off the staircase. And so she actually went for like a sedated hearing test, like a sedated ABR. And it came back as like her hearing is absolutely perfect. And I've noticed that actually a lot of autistic children go that route of having a hearing test and all of that. So Around that mark, I called the SLP back and it was through our early intervention. And I was like, hey, like I'm hearing this from like the school. She's had this hearing test. It's fine. I don't know. Can we have another assessment? And so the person that we saw, the new SLP was actually one that that works and does the ADOS like through our regions, like assessment services. And basically uh, she did the mock ADOS with W and W was like, pulling books out of her hand. And when she was like blowing bubbles, like W was like trying to snatch the wand away and prying open her fingers and wouldn't give up and everything. And so, yeah, I was like looking there and I was like, you don't have to say anything. Like I'm calling the pediatrician. We got it. Yeah. And then actually after that, I remember the SLP was like, yeah, sorry. And I was like, oh, like you always say, sorry. She's amazing. There's nothing to be sorry about. She's going to be a fabulous autistic child. It's all good. Yeah. We got her diagnosis and her speech, she was essentially non-speaking until two and a half. And then at two and a half, her speech just blossomed. She still struggles with clarity. So we've heard it's murder speech. So we are working on that, but otherwise she's really just like a little girl that loves rainbows and unicorns and is just and is very strong-willed. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious for you in this process. And again, we were talking about like Aaron's roadmap she laid on out. For you, do you feel like you went through more of that grief process of grieving the shift in expectations and just trying to process all the emotions? What was that like for you? And like, how long did that last for you? Yeah. So I think that was really when C was diagnosed. I had that because he also had a lot of like sensory sensitivities to like swings. I remember that being my number one 
thing. I was always just sad that he would never want to go on a swing. So I felt like I was mourning swinging my toddler on a swing. But now I have W who's obsessed with swings too much. So I would take that back. (laughs) But yeah, so I definitely went through that kind of stage of like mourning and I went to therapy and I, I really worked through that. But I think finding these like neuroaffirming spaces on social media really helped me to see things from a different perspective. And I think I was always just, although I never knew I was autistic, I always would think about how I would feel if I was in their shoes. So things like I once took C to a therapist and when he was lining up his cars, the therapist just went and muddled them up. And I was like, ah, the poor kid, that's his work. That's his, that's his handiwork. And I was like, that can't be right. And I think I just really listened to that voice. And I think that's what kind of overcame a lot of that grief of just like listening to my voice and truly being like, no, these kids, they're awesome. Like they're great kids. Like we're going to, we're going to figure it. They're just going to be their fabulous autistic selves. Like we're just going to like figure this out. <laughs> oh, I love that. Cause I think You're so right of putting yourself in your child's shoes of, does this feel aligned or not? Does this feel right to you? And listening to your parenting instinct, if it doesn't, that you can advocate for something different. But I I appreciate you being open and sharing that because I think, you know, sometimes on social media, it can seem if people are further in the journey than you, like maybe they never had this grief for these emotions that they had to process through. And I think it's really the power of, and it's not either, or where it's like, you either are like feeling sad about it and grieving and having to work through your emotions or you're affirming it's no, those co-occur together. And I think are really part of that journey. Yeah. But also I, I will say I also have a different journey to a lot of other people because C is really high masking. So people, I would instead have people saying to me, he's not autistic. Really? And I'd be like, oh no, he is. So I was constantly advocating for his needs and not being believed. So I was never thrown a pity party. There was no one, like when he got diagnosed, no one was like, oh, like that's so much to go through. Da-da-da. Everyone was like, Really? Like it's, so it wasn't like, I never got that feeling of where it was okay to grieve because it was more like, I like people being like, maybe she's like a little bit of a hypochondriac. So it's been, yeah. And then obviously like now the more people know him, they do see it as he's gotten older, but those early stages, I felt like I was very alone in that grief, me and my husband, because no one really saw it. No one really got it. I mourn things from a personal perspective, but I also felt like it sometimes wasn't okay. Wow. That's really powerful. And I am sorry that these, this language exists right now where it's, oh no, you know, that language of how invalidating of a process too, that you've committed to advocating and helping to understand your child. You finally get those answers. You feel there's a lot of complex emotions, but you feel hopeful that you can start to better understand your child. And then you have people questioning it. Like, and I I think that speaks to the awareness and the acceptance of autism that where our country or our world, I should say, where our world is because we're in two different countries and it's very similar. For sure. 100%. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm glad like people have seen it along the way, but it's, yeah, you shouldn't like my voice should be enough. Like his diagnosis should be enough. That's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. And yeah, that's the part that I'm sorry of. What's so interesting, because I know with W, you got the I'm sorry that she's autistic. And it's no, I'm sorry that we don't live in this more accepting place where this, that people can be believed and validated for what their experiences are. And then that, that, that is enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Let's pivot to you because I, I think this lady, yeah, the framework of everything. What, when did your kind of self-exploration journey start to, to happen and to start to click for you? Huh? Maybe I have some similarities to how my children's brains think. Yeah. So definitely I saw it in my kids. I think I'm actually a lot more similar to C than W. Like I, I definitely have like sensory sensitivities. I am quite sure. I also have the PDA profile. I I do feel very similar. I know my family for sure say I'm PDA growing up. If you told me to go in this direction, I was going in that direction. Yeah. And I think for me, it was actually social media. I think TikTok played like a huge role in me discovering that I was autistic because started seeing all these women starting to come out and be like, this was my experience. This was my experience. And me being like, oh, like I had that same experience. So yeah, that I think TikTok played a huge part in it. But for me, uh, like my childhood, I always felt like something was different. I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that a lot of people say they feel like aliens in this world. And I, I don't know if I would even go so far as to say that because I think I was very typical appearing. I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of common interests with people, but I always just felt a little bit different or like I didn't fully fit into the social circle. And I just always felt like a bit on the outside, I think. And I was very good at connecting like this, like one-on-one, but as soon as you put me in a group, I was like, I would just shrink. I just didn't know what to do or how to interact or like what kind of happens. And I think that was my experience all through school. Um, I think starting school was even harder. I know that I was referred to an occupational therapist because I had messy handwriting. The teacher told my mom I was defiant because when she would give instructions, I would just like gaze into the distance. But meanwhile, we know now it's because I have auditory processing stuff. And I remember like being in ballet and I would be in the back and I'd be like, Catherine, we've learned this routine like a bajillion times. And I'm still watching the person in front of me, just like trying to copy what they're doing because I never could memorize the routine. That's when I was little. And then I eventually stopped doing ballet because I hated the feeling of the leotard. So (laughs) there's a ton of stuff now looking back, but all through childhood, it just felt like everyone is like, this is normal. Like this is not like, this is very typical. Yeah. And then finally at around 20, I started experiencing when I was in university, I started experiencing a lot of anxiety. And when I heard about like an anxiety diagnosis, I was like, oh, that's it. That's what I have. It's anxiety. So I went, I got like an anxiety diagnosis. I started SSRIs, didn't work. I tried five different SSRIs, nothing worked. And yeah, finally, like after discovering like these autistic women on TikTok and my kids, and I was like, oh, I am autistic. And so I went in to go privately to get my diagnosis because I was like, I'm not even going to try the public healthcare system. And yeah, I, I already knew I was going to get the diagnosis at that point. I was very confident. But when I got it, it was just like the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Yeah, I love that. So timeline wise, what was that in terms of your kid's journey and your journey? 
Yeah. My, so I feel like when I was in that survival mode, when my kids were getting diagnosed, I, there was no space for me to be introspective of myself. I think it was, so it was only in this past year. So it was basically like two years after W a year and a half, two years after W's diagnosis that I feel like since they've started school and I was able to be a bit more introspective of things I've been through, but also at the same time, I've recently struggled. I've always struggled with work, but I've now started to realize why, like I, so I worked uh, in corporate digital marketing and I would often work for a year or six months. And then I would just be like, Oh, I need to get a new job. Like I can't do this anymore. And I would quit and start a new job. And then the same thing would happen. And I've realized now that's burnout, but a lot of that was I was like, why does this keep happening? And so I realized now that's autistic burnout, but that's a lot of the reason that I started, I went on this journey and also learning about ADHD because that's what I first thought, which I've also realized a lot of autistic women go through is that they first are like, oh, okay, it's ADHD and they get their ADHD diagnosis, which is correct, but it's not the full picture. Like ADHD meds also for me, were just not a good fit. And I was like, nope, there's something else. And then realized I was autistic. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That makes sense though. And it's interesting, my clinical brain going off, like thinking about it, these different components, you almost started discovering first, like the anxiety and the ADHD symptoms, and then realizing it all goes under this umbrella of autism. It, there, It's all part of autism that we often see. And I think also my brain goes to TikTok is just such a cool place. <laughs> Love like all the content on there. Like I've always, their algorithm gets me. I like just somehow, yeah, it knows. So I just start seeing all these autistic women. I'm like, yep, sounds right. <laughs> so for you personally, what changes do you think you've made since getting your autism diagnosis? Everything for me, it's wild. I've suffered from chronic migraines since I was 11 and I now have also found out that is actually related to like sensory overload for me and, and also obviously anxiety and stress and all of that. So really for me, living like a very low demand lifestyle is also very important for me personally for like my migraines. Um, so that's been a, a big shift for me. And yeah, just really actually now paying attention to my sensory needs and my emotional needs and all of that, whereas beforehand... I just was not that aware of them. I just felt, oh, we all just wear jeans. That's just what we do, even though they're really uncomfortable for me, but we wear jeans, not thinking that the tightness and discomfort of the jeans is actually going to like impact my regulation for the day and all of that. So I don't wear jeans anymore. <laughs> just an example like that. And really just honoring my capacity. I've realized autistic people, we just don't have as much capacity as typical people. And for me, what that means is I cannot work a full-time job. That is just, it's not an option. I'm going to keep burning out. I quit my full-time job. That was a big thing because I also find the corporate workplace is just so not for autistic people, or at least for me, not for this autistic person. The accommodations just they don't exist or they're not enough. It's just never going to be a good fit. And I was a copywriter. It was as the job in an ideal world would seem great for an autistic person, but just the whole corporate environment just doesn't work at all. Meetings, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So yeah, I realized I just can't work a full-time job. So that obviously like 
changes life dramatically. And it also just means my day is a lot slower. I know that I can't like have my kids in like a bajillion different activities because A, it's not good for them. They can't, for them, school is a lot like holding us together at school and then shuttling them off to an activity. That's a recipe for disaster and it's also too much for me. So it's really just about honoring my capacity, which I never, ever have done. I had no awareness of my capacity. So I really just am living a lot slower. And I've also just changed what I celebrate and my framework. Like we live in this society of achieving, of thinking we need to achieve this success and this ladder of of achievement and just changing the goals for me. Like I totally switched my lens and I'm like, no, I honor my regulation. I honor my rest. This is what I honor and my kids' happiness, my husband, my family. This is what is the most important to me. And that is what I, that is the framework I use of whether I, of how I decide to spend my time and my day. Yeah. And it's so cool to hear how your autism diagnosis helped to create that momentum and shift. But I think even if parents are listening to this right now and don't believe that they're autistic, there's so much value in everything that you just said of honoring your capacity and reframing what your value is not doing. And I know this has been a personal journey I've been on as well in learning to make some of those shifts. So cool. So we do have to wrap up, but anything else that is in your brain that you're like, oh, I want to make sure that I share this, that the listeners are hearing this before we start to wrap up? Um, Like nothing in particular. I think really just like what you said at the beginning that like this year is my year of going out there and speaking and wanting to get this out there. Yeah. I just wanted to really be known that I am like this neuroaffirming person and presence and autistic parent that is there for you, is there for other parents, is there in this world to hopefully make a difference and have our voice known. And yeah, that's what this year is about for me. So yeah. (laughs) That is so incredible. And I think Go follow Catherine at the Neurodiversity Mom on Instagram. Do you want people to come follow you on TikTok too? Sure. Come yeah. to my TikTok. It's really just reposted Instagram reels with the occasional uh, TikTok trend, but um, maybe I'll get better. <laughs> same handle for that as well. Yeah, it's the same handle. And yeah, I recently put together my website, which has a bit more on like me, hopefully going into more like public speaking and going into kind of corporate work and yeah, advocating for our brains to be accepted in our society. And what is that website? It's the neurodiversitymom.net. Okay. I love the consistency. So we will link all of that in the show notes. And Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, using your voice to help empower other parents. I think the time absolutely flew in our conversation, but we covered so many different things, but I hope parents walk away from this feeling empowered and realizing not only that you can go through this journey and learning how to advocate for your children, but also this introspection into yourself and this personal growth. Again, whether that's identifying that you are autistic or ADHD, or you have anxiety, or just identifying who you are and what your capacity is, I think is such an important message. So thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a nice chat and so good to reflect on my journey. And yeah, thank you for also existing. You have a very important presence in this community. So yeah, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. K. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.